0: Good morning everyone welcome to our friday session i hope you're enjoying a, a cup of coffee and you're ready to listen to dr shriver uh, and dr grover i think we'll have a ter- terrific session this morning i'm going to be very quick because john wants to get up here he's got a lot of information i don't want to interfere with his time so we'll, we'll do it quickly but a, a couple of announcements so we do have on tuesday we have the honorary cook lectures a surgical lecture Um, We we have Dr. Nakayama, an outstanding surgeon. He'll be here in person. I think you will enjoy that presentation. I'm certainly going to be here ready to go with that. And then uh, on Wednesday, May 5th from uh, 8.30 to 4, we have our uh, Global Health Symposium. It's called Decolonizing Global Health. Uh, Please link in. Uh, It's going to be, I think, a very telling session. Uh, Global health is very important, especially today. John may or may not mention, he probably will the devastating pandemic in India and what the, the cost of, of in lives and uh, it's just something that is unfathomable that that is occurring there and we need to be in tune with global health and global health issues. Uh, we're doing pretty well here in Connecticut. I heard from uh, the governor yesterday there's 1.3 percent is the positivity rate, John. That's the lowest in six months. So I think the uh, the vaccine is working. We're doing the right things and Connecticut is in the right path. The rest of the country still not 100 percent and you'll hear from him. So Enjoy the session with, uh, with, with John and Nancy. I think you will be, uh, you'll be, be happy to learn all the new facts and we'll have questions at the end. All right, John.
1: Thank you, uh, Juan, and good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here uh, and uh, welcome. Uh, we have people from uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and actually Maryland and New Jersey, I was told, uh, and so last week, so um, welcome. We have a lot to cover today, and uh, I want to leave time for Dr. Nolan's excellent talk. So we're going to move quickly, write down your questions, get them ready for at the end of the talk. Um, the United States is doing better. Um, our deaths are down below 1,000. It's a lot of people every day, but it continues to come down and be suppressed. And that's probably because we've done a very good job of immunizing our elderly across the country but our death rates down and it's going to be very important. We keep it that way because we continue to have a lot of community spread. Um, some of these in that got duplicated now, although much improved, we still have thousands of cases each day. You can see, uh, it's at least four to 5,000, I'm sorry, 40 to 50,000 a day. You can see the curve has come down a bit. However, we have a lot of people hospitalized, almost 50,000 people in the hospitals across the United States from COVID. And that demographic has shifted to younger people being hospitalized. The death rate's down and the younger people hospitalized are getting sick, but they're less likely to die. So as we manage this epidemic in the United States, we've shifted that. However, we need to get our young people immunized because ending up in the ICU from COVID at age 40 is not a good thing. So uh, these these are important data to keep in mind. Now we have a spotty United States resurgence. You can see Michigan still has challenges. Uh, There's some challenges actually in New Hampshire now, uh, northern part of the state. Um, uh, Ditto in Pennsylvania and Florida and spotty in Texas. So you can see we sort of have multiple outbreaks across the country in a spotty way and and, that's where we've kept it. Now I'm going to show you we are, we're at risk to having a much larger outbreak and I'm going to show you that in a few minutes. The world pandemic, however, is burning along. Um, this is Germany. Uh, Germany continues to have thousands of cases. They lost control in, in March and, and early April and they don't have the vaccine supply we have. And so this is a great concern in Germany. They've had a lockdown, there's economic damage, and the rest of the world continues to be challenged. And I think we need to keep that in mind because we're really a global community and that will come back to us. If there are new variants being generated overseas, they're going to get back to the United States and they could be vaccine resistant. So we have to pay attention to the rest of the world. Canada has a very large outbreak in Ontario, um, 10,000 cases a day across the country. It's coming down a bit. But recognize across the border, there's some challenges uh, in terms of controlling COVID right now in Canada. Um, India is now the worldwide humanitarian emergency. Um, You can see that these are just the cases we know about. Most people feel it's twice that a day. So it's probably close to a million cases a day. And the deaths are recorded at thousands, but we don't really know. So this is an international humanitarian emergency, both for the aiding people there, but also thinking of the billions of viral replications going on, there will be variants generated from this outbreak that will be damaging and vaccine resistant. So we need to pay attention to this and help this country get it under control as soon as possible. We're a global community when pandemics are concerned. Now, Connecticut, as Juan mentioned, um, we're doing better. You can see the community spreads coming down. I'm going to be a little more cautious than Dr. Salazar was. And you know we have hundreds of new cases a day, but it's way down. There's still a lot of community spread. So be vigilant. This test positivity rate was from Monday. It's now 1%, 1.5%, uh, 2%. So we're improving. Things are going in the right direction. The number of patients hospitalized in Connecticut static, but relatively low numbers. And again, I'm going to show you these hospitalized patients are now younger. Here is uh, Connecticut's um, concentration in a much younger age group. These are uh, cases, total number of cases, new cases over the last week or so per 100,000 by age group. And you can see the 20 to 40 age group are where 20 to 50 age group are where all our cases are now. This is a very big shift for the state. A number, many of these people are getting ill and being hospitalized. You show, saw the number of people in the hospital is static, but it's a much younger group, and many of them are quite ill. Massachusetts, just to show you, this is not unique to Connecticut; has a shift way over to the younger demographic. The same thing. These are new cases. Um, and you can see the 20 to 29 age group in Massachusetts is now the largest uh, number of cases are in that younger age group. So clearly, in, as I look at a vaccine strategy, we're gonna need to immunize younger age groups and get that done. And that is a particularly resistant population to getting immunized right now. And so this is gonna be very important for us to pay attention to, or we're not gonna have this pandemic you know, snuffle down the way we need to. Connecticut mortality stays low. This is a tribute to the success of immunization in Connecticut and frankly across the country. I showed you last week that we've done a good job in the United States across the whole country immunizing elderly. And our death rate is staying low. And if you look at the young people being hospitalized, they have a lower death rate than elderly being hospitalized. So so this continues to be good news for us. But very important, when you look at mortality in Connecticut It is wildly disproportionate in African-American and Latino populations. This is age adjusted death rate per 100,000. You can see uh, Latino and black uh, Connecticut residents dominate in the mortality, much less so obviously many people died who are are white and non-African American and non-Latino. But it is by population disproportionate in those populations. We do not understand that, but again, it gives you focus of where we need to target our immunizations. We have remarkable vaccine figures in Connecticut. I I just uh, did a screenshot. This was the DPH presentation earlier this week, Monday, and we've done tremendously well in elderly, over 80% uh, vaccinated, and um, almost 3 million doses have been administered. Now, these numbers for the uh, younger people are not, everybody got two doses, but this is sort of the penetration we have of at least one dose in the state. And it is among the very best in the country. It is a success and it's why our mortality rate stays low and why the governor has the ability to reopen some things safely. Immunizations in Massachusetts stumbled early on, but it's picked up and you can see this, they're not as good as Connecticut, but these are first doses and uh, getting up there, almost 50% in most counties, except the Springfield metropolitan area, which is lagging. There's a, a large African-American and Latino community there. It is imperative that we improve immunization rates uh, in those areas. And Remember, there's an interstate that goes right through Hartford, right up into Massachusetts, and then north. Very important we have pay attention to these communities as we get our immunizations out. And we have excess capacity for immunization now. So again, these are strategies that both Connecticut and Massachusetts need to address. Now, as a country, we've now delivered, uh, 232 million doses have been administered. It's quite remarkable. And despite the radio static you hear in the news every night and podcasts and crazy stuff, we're doing okay. So you've got almost, and now it's going up, it's almost 50% of the total population has gotten one dose. Unfortunately, fully vaccinated is lagging. It's 30 to 35 now percent. It's not bad. We are going to need to do better. But remember, if you figure 10, 20% of the population has had COVID and we have maybe 50% getting up there are, are getting immunized, we might hit herd immunity at a lower immunization rate than we had thought. So, But we need to push on this and we are lagging. now. I'm going to show you some data in a moment. Uh, we're lagging a bit in immunizations over the last week. And, and here you can see We are at 4 million doses a day. That's down to two and a half million. It continues to decline. And many clinics across the country have capacity now. So we're now moving into people who are less inclined to get immunized for whatever reason. It's gonna be critical. We get vaccines to our underserved communities and to young people who don't feel it's an urgent thing to do, or we'll continue to have a lot of community spread from this disease. Many states have done a great job immunizing elderly. I told you this is a national success story. We immunized our vulnerable. Um, You can see upper Midwest, one of the reasons the death rates there, even though their outbreaks are not that high, California and uh, New England has done very well, New York state lagging. And you can see, unfortunately, some of the southern states have not immunized uh, their elderly as well as they could. And West Virginia got off to a great start with immunization, but now has lagged. And Puerto Rico, a particular problem as well with infrastructure getting immunizations out. So we still have vulnerable elderly across the country. Large swaths of the United States, though, this is just adult population numbers immunized, 18 and above total doses per 100,000. And you can see we have the entire southeast under immunized. It doesn't take a public health expert to realize that's where our next outbreak is going to be. And it could be bad. So we're really going to need to pay attention to this. And when every state's doing it differently, it's difficult to do that. But you can see the United States is vulnerable for quite a large outbreak in the Southeastern states that are uh, under immunized currently. Now, the New York Times had a great article and I just lifted it. How are the RNA vaccines made? I think it's important that we know this because when we speak to the vaccine hesitant patients, you'll be able to know how this is made. It's clever, it has nothing to do with fetal cells or anything else like that, it is technology. So plasmids infect viruses and uh, what they've done is they've taken a plasmid and they inserted the genes for the spike protein into the plasmid and they just cloned it from the coronavirus. And then they they do is they put it around a lot of E. coli and infects all these E. coli. So you have millions and millions of E. coli infected with this plasmid that has a little piece of genetic material that codes the spike protein. Then they grow huge quantities of these plasmids in vats with E. coli, take out the plasmids and purify it, chop out the spike protein DNA, and they have millions of gallons of linearized spike protein DNA that they just grew in E. coli. It's very clever. And then they throw that in a vat, okay? And they transcribe it to RNA with enzymes. And you've got, again, enormous amounts of messenger RNA that was transcribed from the DNA that encodes the spike protein. They coat it in a lipid and voila, you have the vaccine. Now it sounds easy, but there are apparently four factories. They ship it around. One factory is specialized in growing the E. coli and another factory is the lipid particles and another factory transcribes the DNA to the RNA. So there's this whole supply chain, three of the factories in the United States, one's in the EU And so um, this is how the RNA vaccines are being made. Moderna is very similar. So it's important when when I I, I talk to people about vaccine hesitancy and they're worried about the vaccine and this and that, you can say, hey, look, this is how it's made. It's clever and there's really no, there's nothing in there uh, that in any way should surprise you. Moving on. So anti-IL-6 drugs have been touted as, as an idea that could be successful This is the thought process behind why they might work. You have the SARS-CoV-2 virus attacking you and uh, there's a a lot of immune reactivity. The antigen-presenting cell, the monocytes, the T cells start cranking out all this IL-6 and that gives you part of the cytokine storm that causes the damage to the body. And the monoclonals, this is an example of one that block IL-6 were thought to be a great idea. Unfortunately, in this particular paper from the New England Journal last week didn't do anything. And so IL-6 inhibition did not change the clinical course significantly. So once I think you're sick and you're in the cytokine storm, these inhibitors are, it's sort of too late. The horse is out of the barn and you're not gonna get much clinical improvement. So I wanted to share that. This shows the challenge we continue to have in treating this disease. And in my mind, again, it, it shows the urgency of immunization and prevention as opposed to treatment. I think we're gonna continue to be challenged to treat this virus, because once you're sick and in the ICU, the damage has been done. Now, this is really important. This is from the MMWR um, and it it focuses on what are we gonna do about vaccine breakthrough? And are the variants gonna cause this? And what does it mean? And so there's a small outbreak of COVID 19 um, in a nursing facility in Kentucky, and they had immunized everyone. Well, they thought they did. They'd immunized most of the patients, but it turned out only 50% of the healthcare providers bothered to get immunized. This is a national problem of healthcare providers not being as immunized as they could be. It's very spotty depending on what state you're in. So, in this outbreak, it turned out there were breakthrough infections in immunized elderly and some breakthrough infections in healthcare providers. And this mutant contains the 484K spike protein mutation in the South African strain, but also some other mutations. And 25% of vaccinated residents and 7% of vaccinated healthcare providers became infected, but not seriously. And the variant, by the way, was introduced in the nursing home by unvaccinated healthcare provider, which is why we urge all providers to get vaccinated because you could unknowingly introduce a variant into the hospital or into your clinic or into a nursing home. However, the good news is that even with that, the vaccines were 86% protective against symptomatic disease and 87% protective against healthcare for disease and healthcare providers. So you lost a little bit of efficaciousness, but not much, even with a variant outbreak. But we are going to start seeing this. It's something to keep in mind. And one of the reasons the CDC has been pushing vigilance. Press doesn't like it, but these are the kind of data that make people worry about this and creating the idea we need to continue to be vigilant. Summer camps. The CDC came out with guidance. I couldn't even, I couldn't even it was so complicated, I have to be honest with you. I couldn't really put it here. You go look at yourself, okay? If you're a nurse or a doctor and you're responsible for a summer camp, you can pull this up. The bottom line is, and you can see it in my summary on the bottom, they say masks, three feet distance, masks outside to strongly encourage all the counselors get immunized and eligible campers get immunized. You gotta clean everything all the time and careful monitoring for symptoms daily and have a game plan for a COVID positive outbreak. So I think um, summer camps with strong effort are going to be able to reopen this summer, but there's gonna be a lot of effort here to do this right. Uh, Testing is gonna be involved as well, but the guidance is on the CDC website. Um, I think it's reasonable to, it's nurturing people to move ahead a bit in a safe way. So uh, keep watch for that. Um, Acute allergic reactions. Um, This is interesting uh, in that they've now got more and more data looking at from voluntary reporting. Remember when you you get immunized, there's this voluntary uh, uh, post-reporting survey that goes into effect. And what you find here is that acute allergic reactions are really rare. And you can see in the first column, the percents are really .000. And this is confirmed anaphylaxis post both RNA vaccines. So it occurs it's vanishingly unusual to have real uh, documented anaphylaxis after these uh, immunizations, these RNA immunizations. So again, as we get, this is from Mass General, as we get more and more data, these vaccines look very safe, uh, unusually safe. And so I think these are another, as I try to give you tools for the vaccine-hesitant patients, you can say, you know, it's 0.002% or 0.01 percent People might have an allergic reaction, and guess what? They have epinephrine right in every vaccine clinic. It's going to be fine. So, um, very, very rare. Vaccine hesitancy. Um, I do want to talk about this. I had a. I'll give you a vignette uh, over the weekend. There's uh, an individual, a number of our individuals in town. I live in a very rural area. They're in farming or or they're uh, contractors or whatever. Uh, they tend to be relatively young men. Um, And uh, many of them are immunizing their families, but they're not being immunized. Because one of the the individuals who's who's a good friend of mine actually for many years said the vaccine's just not right for me. My wife, and we're gonna immunize my wife and and the old, my my parents, but I I don't need to take it. It's just not right for me. I work outside, all sorts of excuses. But what I really picked up was just sort of visceral fear. And it's not logical, it's not based on science. And I think we can say all the science we want, But these are beliefs that people have, and and I think it's important for us to understand that and and work with that and try to move people to feeling safe and understanding for several reasons. One, it's not good for young adults to get this disease. They're being hospitalized, they're ending up in ICUs. Long haulers, God knows how many people are gonna be long haulers who get this disease. So the disease is bad. The second issue, the vaccine is no longer a guinea pig project. We have 200 million Americans have been immunized without problem. And the efficacy, even with the variants, is terrific. And, and finally, um, and I, I get this is where I think the country has become unglued a little bit. You know, you go back to World War II, and we had an enormous enemy, and there was a draft. People got drafted at all walks of life and everybody did their part. If you weren't drafted, you had a garden, or the gasoline was rationed, you name it, everybody did their part. Here, all of a sudden, the ethos has been, well, if I don't feel like doing it, I don't wanna do it, as opposed to, gee, I'm gonna do my part, I'm healthy, but I'm gonna get immunized because I don't wanna get someone else sick, and I, I just want this done with, I want this pandemic done with, and I'm gonna do my part. I do think we need to start saying that to people um, because what, what you have to push at, back against, look at this, So this is from Infowars, my favorite conspiracy website. I check it every week because people, millions of people actually look at it. It's terrifying. COVID vaccines are illegal bioweapons. And then a a guy wrote a book, you know, based on the bioweapons law. I mean, you know, come on. Um, The radical right wing in Israel doesn't want to get immunized. They're surprised. Okay, no one's shocked by that. And, And now this guy, Joe Rogan, gets on saying, well, young people on his millions of podcasts, young people don't need to get the vaccine. So the problem with that is it's not a public health. It's not correct. Public health-wise, young people do need to get the vaccine. will not interrupt transmission. And there'll be new variants, and we will get more people dead. It's just wrong. Public health. And here's the infowars. Leftists freak out after Joe Rogan says healthy young people don't need to be vaccinated. Now, to me, this has nothing to do with my politics. It's just Public Health 101. And so what they're doing is they're spinning every public health directive, which is correct. We need young people immunized. We're not going to break the back of this pandemic into some political issue. And it's not. It's a public health, science-based issue. And so this is where we are. It is critical we counteract this. And it's not just going to be fact-driven. You know, Some of it's going to need to start telling people, do your part, because we will never get back to normal. The economy won't be back to normal. Your job won't be back to normal until we get everyone immunized and we break the back of this pandemic. So that's where we are today. Um, There is, I've gone back to the good, the bad, and the ugly. I I think, unfortunately, the India outbreak, I I just can't ignore it until we focus as a world to get immunizations out. The United States vaccination effort is good, but we're beginning to decrease, and we have whole states that are under-immunized. We're going to need to fix that. Connecticut, excellent immunization levels. Community spread is still out there. It's robust, but we are getting on top of it. We need to immunize our young adults. They're the ones being hospitalized. And our resurgence in the United States so far is isolated. However, there are more variants prevalent. We are getting breakthrough infections, and large parts of the United States are under-immunized. The worldwide pandemic is roaring ahead. India, Thailand, by the way, is bad. Now, all over the world, we are going to need to help these countries get this under control, or it's going to come right back to us. We have surplus immunizations in the U.S. There is vaccine hesitancy impeding us getting our job done here. Every one of us as a provider is going to need to work on this. Thank you and I uh, look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you John uh, for for an outstanding presentation as always. I'm glad you brought back Clint Eastwood uh, especially this Oscar Week. I appreciate that. On uh, the 50th anniversary poster. Oh, and the 50th anniversary poster. So very good. Um, I I also just uh, want to mention that the this the, the legislature and the governor then signed into law a, uh, a you know, new bill that actually eliminates the religious exemption for vaccines, which uh, is something the Connecticut Children's endorsed. Uh, so that's, I think that's going to be important. Uh, now we're going to move on to uh, Dr. Nancy Grover. Uh, she's an assistant professor of, of otolaryngology at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Nancy has been with us for, for a couple of years, uh, uh, and she, uh incredibly well-trained. Uh, she did her medical training at the Lady Harding Medical College in New Delhi, then uh, completed uh, a residency in otolaryngology at the University of Delhi, uh, subsequently uh, trained both in uh, general surgery at the uh, University of California, San Diego, and then a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at Rady Children. So incredibly experienced, a fantastic uh, p- uh, surgeon and provider and then she's going to give us, uh, you know, uh, an update on, 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 on a very important topic for all of you. So Nancy, uh, the podium is yours.
2: Thanks for the introduction. Uh, good morning everybody. Happy Friday. Um, so today I'll be talking to you about updates in management of pediatric obstructive sleep apnea. There has been a lot of exciting evidence that has come up in the last decade or so Uh, on this topic in children and a lot that was being done, especially in the field of uh, sleep surgery in adults is really now being done in children. So I'll share some of this with you today. Uh, No disclosures or conflicts of interest. So really the objectives here today is to review the definitions. So, you know, we know what we're talking about, Um, identify what the associated symptoms are so we can spot these uh, patients in our clinics, what the need for management is of these symptoms and of these patients, and then last but not the least, what are the management options, outcomes, and recent updates. That's our department here at Connecticut Children's. So I wouldn't go into a lot of detail about uh, how to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea, but the gold standard really is a polysomnography. Um, And you guys can read um, the definition here, and it's really very brief. Uh, I would like to say that the diagnosis in children, there is a very low threshold to diagnose children with sleep apnea, because they can be very sensitive to the effects of um, sleep apnea, hypoxia um, in their sleep. So although we talk about obstruction, we also talk about a concept called hypopnea, And really the the workhorse or the definition that's really, um, the term that's more talked about is apnea hypopnea index, which is averaged out apneas, hypopneas over the hour, and it's called AHI. And we use that term a lot uh, when talking about management and outcomes. So moving on from obstructive sleep apnea and diagnosis on polysomnography, really the workhorse for a lot of the ENT surgeons is a definition that we use and called sleep disordered breathing. Uh, We don't always rely on polysomnography for diagnosis because one, it's not very widely uh, available to a lot of the population and it's pretty intense in that the parents have to bring the child overnight. So we rely a lot on clinical diagnosis and under this umbrella of sleep disordered breathing, it ranges all the way from snoring to sleep apnea and a couple of um, other clinical entities in the middle air resist- resistance syndrome and hypoventilation. So, when we talk about uh, sleep disordered breathing, we really are talking about um, any sleeping pattern over and above the normal restful uh, sleep pattern, which includes mouth breathing in children, gasping for air in the night, uh, pauses in breathing. So, all of this sort of is what we call sleep disordered breathing symptoms. Again, coming back to polysomnography, in our academy, there are only a few specific guidelines for performing polysomnography. Not every child with suspicion for sleep apnea needs to have a polysomnography. Likewise, the American Academy of Pediatrics has guidelines and all they say is polysomnography is recommended for management of sleep apnea. So like I had said before, for us, a lot of the times the diagnosis is clinical. And how do we make the clinical diagnosis? So there are a few questionnaires uh, which are available. One of them is a pediatric sleep questionnaire. It has a fair amount of sensitivity and specificity. Again, for as ENT surgeons, we really don't use it all the time, but it's a great screening tool for uh, the primary care setting. For us, the diagnosis that we ask in history uh, from the parents are mostly if, does the child gasp for air in the night? Are there any pauses in breathing? And there are these other, uh, lot of symptoms that can happen in the night, which are associated with sleep apnea or sleep-disordered breathing. Mostly, if the child is restless in their sleep, are they hot and sweaty? Is there any bedwetting? Do they choke in their sleep? Or do, the ch- do parents report that they see their, ch- you know, they see their child sleeping in a neck extended position or a fetal position? And really, uh, very importantly, certain things like, do they have any daytime symptoms, which include, uh, so in adults, when they have sleep apnea, the commoner symptom really is feeling tired or sleepy in the day, which can happen in children. But more commonly, uh, the symptom in children is there being hyperactivity or behavioral issues. So that's a very important thing to ask again in history. So how common is this problem? Really, snoring can be prevalent in up to 30% of populations. Sleep apnea, about 5.7%, the prevalence. But if you see, the prevalence is about 10 times as high in adolescents with obesity. And that's a a roaring problem um, that has been a roaring problem in the past few years. Uh, There are two peaks of this problem. First one is two to eight years, which is time uh, where there's a natural growth spurt of lymphoid tissue and tonsils and adenoids um, and the other growth the other peak is in adolescence and that's mostly related to weight gain so why do we really need to treat this so for untreated sleep apnea there are likely to be effects on cardiovascular system Um, in children especially there could be neurobehavioral effects there could be neurocognitive effects, and there can be metabolic effects. However, overarchingly, it really can affect the quality of life for the child, as perceived by the parents. And there are many studies that have documented uh, improvement. So that's supposed to read post, not post, Sorry, post treatment uh, for quality of life. Um, and I do have a personal connection here when I talk about quality of life for sleep disorder breathing. My child had their adenoids removed, and I just could not see them sleep the way they were sleeping and gasping for air and sweating and not breathing properly. So that's a real big driver for uh, treating these conditions in children. And it does help in parental counseling. So there are several instruments that are there out there for you know um, assessing quality of life. The one uh, that I use in my practice and fairly common is OSA 18. So this is just to give you guys a brief outlook. There are several domains and mostly tasks about symptoms in sleep. And there's also this domain about the caregiver concern for their child. Um, And we are excited to be hopefully starting a randomized study in our department soon about investigating the likely effects of quality of life on decision-making, on parental decision-making. So what really are the management options that we have? So there are medications, and this really has been uh, emerging evidence in the last few years about medical management of mild to moderate sleep apnea. Montelukast has shown uh, short-term benefits in treatment of sleep apnea, and a combination of intranasal corticosteroids and Montelukast also is useful for children in mild OSA, and it results in normalization of findings in up to 62% of children. Now, on the contrary, there's been a Cochrane review which says there's insufficient evidence for use of steroids, intranasal steroids itself for treatment of sleep apnea in children. However, just looking at the data a little bit more carefully, there are a lot of uh, children in the older age group and higher AHI that were included in this review. So really on the face of it, it looks like it's a fantastic option and it works. But again, the limitation really is This is, uh, we don't know anything about the long-term outcomes. Most of the studies have follow-up up up to six to seven months, so we don't really know what happens when we stop these medications, whether the children continue to maintain benefits or do they relapse. And one would think it's really intuitive that weight loss would help um, in sleep apnea, especially in adolescents, but it is a very challenging situation in children. uh, Weight loss, because a lot of them would have it either from underlying genetic problems or um, metabolic issues. So it's really not easy to talk about or to implement these things in children. However, just like our hospital, we have a great weight management program. There are several around the country. And data from these uh, programs has shown that weight loss either helps in resolution or improvement of sleep apnea. And it all depends upon you know where they're starting from, how bad the sleep apnea is, Whereas earlier data from several years ago did not document any benefits of weight loss. So we are seeing some good uh, results there, encouraging results with weight loss. But really the workhorse, again, for sleep apnea in children and the primary treatment is surgical and it's tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy or a combination of both, because this is really the commonest cause of sleep apnea in children, large tonsils or large adenoids. You see how much space those tonsils are taking up in the throat. Um, And in the night when children sleep and the muscle tone changes, it sort of totally cuts off their air supply. So surgery is really still the primary management option for children with sleep apnea. So tonsillectomy, as we talked about, just like there is many ways of skinning a cat. There are extremely, I can't even name many ways of doing a tonsillectomy and I have trained with most of those techniques. Um, In our hospital, in our group, what we do really is intracapsular tonsillectomy. So if you look on the tonsil on the left, which says I on it, that's intracapsular tonsillectomy. So what this means is that we remove most, that the shaded area, which is about 90% of the tonsil and we leave a little bit on the side and that acts like a biologic dressing and it causes less damage and inflammation to the muscle, whereas on the right side you see a total tonsillectomy, which is the traditional technique, and we take the entire tonsil out. So why, have we stu- why do we do this and why is it beneficial? There is a meta-analysis which has shown less pain in the postoperative period from intracapsular tonsillectomy, faster return to normal diet and activity, and less post-op admissions for dehydration and bleeding. So that's a big win. Uh, in my opinion. And that's how we do it in our group. That's how we do it. Really, that's a microdebreeder. um, Just to show you a picture, just shaving down the tonsils. Outcomes. So it would be great if tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy cured everybody. But again, we have data in the last several years, which shows that, unfortunately, it's not 100% curative. The success rates really uh, for resolution of sleep apnea vary from 30 to 80%. So the 30% looks like it's a very grim figure, but that's usually in kids who have other comorbidities and risk factors, and I will talk about that. Um, up to 80 to 85% is in otherwise healthy children. So there is still a small percentage that remain uh, with residual symptoms. And what are the risk factors? So I am going to talk about risk factors in context of a very, um, it's, it's a nice study, which came out, which is the CHAT study, Childhood Adenotonsillectomy Trial. It was a randomized trial in which one group of children aged five to nine were randomized to um, tonsillectomy, adenotonsillectomy, and the other group to watchful waiting. So this was a prospective trial, and they found that the risk factors for residual sleep apnea are obesity, black race and AHI greater than 4.7. And other studies have shown that age greater than seven is also one of the risk factors for residual sleep apnea after adenotonsillectomy. So what they also showed, however, was up to 47% of the children who did not get surgery, they had spontaneous resolution of sleep apnea at seven months. Um, So that sounds like it's, it's not a bad thing at all. And and patients could wait. However, they also saw that the advantage of the surgical group over watchful waiting was, of course, one, they normalized their numbers on polysomnography, and also there was improved scores on multiple parent-reported behavioral scales, which means that parents in the group of children that underwent surgery reported much better improved behavior of their child in the daytime as compared to those did not undergo surgery. And again, we come back to the quality of life. Uh, There were much better quality of life scales in children who underwent surgery. Um, So now we talk about sleep apnea and so many other evidence-based indications for treating sleep apnea, sleep disorder, breathing. And the other concept that has come out in the last few years is should we be treating snoring? Should we treat kids with snoring because there is evidence that snoring can disrupt sleep in the night and affect behavior in the daytime. Um, There is an ongoing randomized trial called the pediatric and tonsillectomy trial for snoring for very mild sleep apnea. So right now this indication actually I would say at the best remains an off-label use. So what do we do for children who've had tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy um, and they need further management. Other risk factors are, of course, Down syndrome, achondroplasia, Prader-Willi syndrome, craniofacial and mandibular anomalies. Because all these uh, skeletal factors, they reduce the amount of airway inside uh, the child's uh, throat. So how do we evaluate these children after adenotonsil me? Again, we have to take a good history, good evaluation. Now, unlike in the primary cases where polysomnography is not really essential for diagnosis, for post tonsillectomy patients, we do need polysomnography to make a diagnosis of residual sleep apnea. Um, awake endoscopy is a very good tool to look at factors which may still be blocking the child's airway. And the picture here I've put up, I'm sorry about the bad picture quality, the entire pink thing you see is big adenoid tissue and the small black slit at the bottom, that's actually the only airway the child has at the back of their nose. That whole thing actually should be like a big black hole, which is not, and it's blocked by the adenoid. So the adenoids can regrow after surgery. Then uh, the nasal turbinates in the, uh, turbinates in the nose could be causing blockage. Septum could be deviated. Um, other things are really the palate. The tongue base can also cause blockage of the airway, and there could be some problems with the larynx that can cause the blockage of airways. And then again, we talked about the skeletal problems. A high arched palate can make a small nasal cavity. So this much um, on on an in-office exam, there is emerging use for drug-induced sleep endoscopy. What it means is really uh, in the office, what we see is what we see is fixed obstruction. However, there are sites that can cause obstruction of the airway when the child is sleeping and the muscle tone changes. And we may not necessarily be able to see those sites when they're awake in the office. So the drug induced endoscopy almost sort of we give anesthesia, not we, we have a great team of anesthesiologists here. They know how to get it just right. They give the child anesthesia, which sort of mimics their normal sleep. And then uh, I perform the endoscopy from the nose all the way down to the throat to see which areas are really closing down and, you know, can we potentially fix. So on the left side of the screen, you see like a normal big open larynx and that's the airway. That's almost what it should look like. And on the right side, you see how the airway, the black slit is so squished out. So that's the larynx. And the L and the T is actually the lingual tonsils. So just like we have normal tonsils, these are tonsil tissue at the back of the tongue and how that's squishing the airway so this is a cause or a potential site for obstruction and you know could be addressed to relieve the obstruction in sleep apnea so what do we do outcomes and updates again we're talking about that so there is a lot of data to say that multidisciplinary management of these posted in a sleep apnea group is better and improved with the help of multidisciplinary teams so that the patients can get more targeted approach to their uh, symptoms based upon you know their anatomy sites of obstruction and other behavioral aspects. So um, we do one clinic a month here at Connecticut Children's for such uh, children. So PAP therapies, uh, positive airway pressure therapy, still remains the workhorse and the primary therapy for children who have sleep apnea, even after tonsils and adenoids. It's really non-invasive, and if it works, it works great. The problem really here is the compliance, like uh, children just, many children can't sleep with a mask on their face, and it has other limitations, like it could affect the growth of the skeleton. So the compliance really is about approximately 40%, and it's even worse in teenagers. So it's always worth a try. If it works, it's great. What do we do if it doesn't? Now, nasal procedures can help. So again, on the left side of the screen, there is this patient which has large boggy turbinates and a deviated septum. And on the right side after surgery, the airway looks so much open. So there, AHI actually went from a severe to mild. Um, So that was a good outcome. Then we talked about how tongue can block the airway. And sorry, that's the amateur artist in me and I tried to draw a tongue, so please use your imagination. Um, so tongue can be addressed. There are several procedures. The, commons, the commonest procedure is really a lingual tonsillectomy. Like in the previous slide, I had shown those two big blobs of uh, lymphoid tissue. So just go and shave them off, and that makes a lot of room in the backside of the throat, and it squishes the airway less. Um, Also, uh, posterior midline glosectomies, if on this slide, you see the shaded diamond, uh, the the spear-shaped area in the back. So just go in there and core out the tongue tissue, the muscles. So that reduces the bulk of the tongue, makes again more volume of open airway, um, and helps relieve the obstruction. So mostly, uh, these two procedures are done in conjunction. And they work. Uh, The limitation is they really don't work well in in obese patients. They have good outcomes in normal to overweight patients. So again, the weight is a big confounding factor for um, success of these techniques. And then um, epiglottic surgery. Sometimes the epiglottis is floppy. There is, again, some interest in uh, this term occult laryngomalacia. To put it very simply, it's a floppy larynx and it happens only in sleep. So fixing that um, is helpful. Now, really the most exciting thing that has come to the pediatric sleep surgery is hypoglossal nerve stimulation. So this has been fairly uh, common and one of the routine post-DNA surgeries in the adult world. Uh, In the pediatric world, this is still in context of clinical trials. So to put it very simply, Uh, When the patient breathes in, there is a sensor lead in the chest which senses that they are breathing. Then it goes sends a signal to the impulse generator and the impulse generator then sends a signal to the electrode which is implanted in the tongue and it stimulates the protrusion muscles to push the tongue out of the airway. So we are very excited about getting this technology soon to the pediatric world. Conclusion, um, there is increasing awareness of sleep disordered breathing in children um, on their neurobehavioral effects and effects on quality of life. DNA still remains the first-line treatment and is successful in majority of children. Without comorbidities and risk factors, intracapsular tonsillectomy uh, results in faster return to normal diet, less postoperative pain. Risk factors for residual sleep apnea should be identified in children, and this subgroup will benefit from ongoing surveillance for persistence of sleep apnea. Residual sleep apnea after a tonsillectomy and an adenoidectomy benefits from a multidisciplinary approach. So, we can individualize management in this group of patients. And secondary surgeries improve sleep apnea in a significant number of children. Um, hypoglossal nerve stimulation, again, hopefully the next frontier in management for residual sleep apnea and children after adenotonsillectomy. Mm, that's it. Thank you. Thank
0: you, uh, Dr. Gordon. Really appreciate that uh, outstanding presentation and uh, it's uh, lear- learned quite a bit. I appreciate it. Uh, John, if you can go back to the podium, we have a, a, a lot of questions um, related to COVID. Uh, from Dr. Zelleritis How does the pattern of surges for COVID compare with a typical influenza year's pattern?
1: That's a great question, uh, Ed. Um, the question is how does the current COVID outbreak? Uh, Compared to influenza, I would say it's really different right now. It's very patchy all over the country, um, and uh, you know we've moved away from the elderly group getting very sick because they're immunized. So I think it's rolling out a a bit differently than an influenza outbreak would roll out. So I think I think it's quite different.
0: I know the question. It appears from your graphs that India, Ontario and Germany did not have a surge peaking in April, as we did, but are having it now almost the, the reverse what Connecticut did. This seemed to be the pattern of some of other U.S. states in previous slides. How do you got these patterns?
1: You know, the few countries, I think, locked down very hard, probably harder than we did, got it under control. They began to reopen. But unlike the United States, they didn't have vaccine supply that was adequate. So a lot of people weren't immunized, and it's taken off now. Um, so that you know, again, hard lockdown, opening up a bit, inadequate vaccinations, and it's taking off. And this is a challenge in the EU. Again, the United States consumed a lot of the world's vaccine supply that was available. I think um, in America it's very spotty, and it's every state's doing it differently. Some have reopened, some are locked down, some are great on immunizations, some are not. Uh, people wear masks in the Northeast; they might not wear it in Idaho. So. You know it's it's really been uh spotty and different all over the country and this has been pretty typical of the epidemic the united states from the beginning i do worry though as i showed you uh, we are vulnerable we have states that are strongly under immunized and we have outbreaks in michigan and texas it is going to happen so as fast as we can get people immunized we need to do that
0: Uh, john any comments on the um, emergency use authorization for 12 to 15 year olds for the vaccine
1: Yeah, it's gonna be soon. Um, I know Pfizer already has data. I know Moderna have data. Um, I can't tell you when they're gonna move those clinical trials to a presentation to the FDA. I think it's gonna be soon. I I say before September. They're gonna shoot for the school year. Uh, So before September, um, down to six months, they're getting data. And I just read uh, yesterday that they'll have the data by fall. So again, when they can get that in front of the FDA and they sort all the data and look at safety and efficacy, I don't know. So I'm very optimistic we'll have down to 12 for the school year.
0: We have a a question for Dr. Grover. Please discuss the use of oral appliance to pull pull the lower jaw forward versus CPAP.
2: There is a role for that. Again, the issue really remains compliance. and there is about a thirty to forty percent compliance. Again, worse in teenagers, which is probably the group that would tolerate it. Um, and it may not be meant for everybody. So that's why sleep endoscopy also helps in that. If we see the site of obstruction is in the tongue or the the, the oropharyngeal airway, there uh, advancement prosthesis can help. Yes
0: another question for you. It's uh, from Dr. Hogan. If, if half resolve in six months, why not wait on all, all the obstructive sleep apnea? Expanding to snoring seems ripe for overdiagnosis um, if half are real uh, and resolve in six months. It's a good, it's so, good question. question.
2: Good question. Thank you. And I take it in two parts. So like I would said in my presentation also, yes, it resolves. But see, that's uh, one study and the limitation, I didn't discuss the limitations of the study, and maybe I should have, the age group was five to nine. We don't have data below it. We don't have data above it. We know there are risk factors for persistence. So yes, if we see patients in that group, age group, and again, those were the patients with non-severe OSA. So we cannot offer that for everybody. And again, like I said, it's it's challenging because sleep apnea has to be diagnosed with polysomnography if we are going to go to watchful waiting. That's one of the uh, the um, limitations, and then we talked about quality of life. Um, and I, you'd be surprised to see when we come and we ask parents how concerned they are about their child's quality of life. So yes, you could watchful wait if you know they are not severe OSA, and we know that age group and they don't have risk factors. But again, it's up to the parent if they are happy if they want to continue that way for. And they they want their quality of life to be as it is, or they want it to get better. And snoring, yes, like I said, it's still off-label. We don't have a lot of data. And yes, it's that's not when we diagnose people and we treat them patients, we don't only look for snoring. Snoring is one of the essential criteria for diagnosis. So there is a trial ongoing, so we'll see what the results are.
0: Thank you. Um, John, I have several other questions for you. Um, do. The question from Dr. Scherzer is an interesting one. Do people generate secretory antibodies from, uh, from the COVID vaccines? If not, might vaccinated individuals carry nasal SARS-CoV and infect the non-vaccinated population, and would that defeat the hope for herd immunity?
1: You know, it's a great question, the question about secretory antibodies post-immunization. Remember, most perennial immunizations do not induce IgA in the secretions. Now, there are caveats that the H-flu vaccine did, so we don't know whether this particular parenteral vaccine is doing that, it would be uncommon. Um, that said, we know it gets into breast milk if in an immunized mother and early on, and, and that the baby is getting those antibodies. So it's a very interesting question. I have not seen any IGA secretory antibody data post-immunization. It's a good project actually. Uh, I'm looking at Dr. Salazar right now, this is an interesting question. So, we are looking
0: at saliva and antibodies in saliva right now as we speak. A uh, great qu- couple of questions that I'll, that I'll put together if, if can you uh, can you talk about over-the-counter home COVID test and then oral pills like Tamiflu, which piggybacks into Dr. Argüello's question are whether or not transcriptase inhibitors have been developed to treat COVID.
1: So far, you know, I've seen a, a couple of uh, Merck is developing an oral antiviral. The data in vitro looked pretty good. I've not seen any clinical trials answering your second question first. so, as of now, I've not seen uh, any peer-reviewed clinical trials of an oral antiviral. I know Merck is trying to develop one, so that's there. Um, the first question, one was... Uh,
0: uh, the, the over-the-counter home COVID test. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, I think they serve a purpose. Um, if there's an outbreak in a summer camp and you want to know really quickly, uh, there's probably some purpose to that. The challenge will be, and I just looked at these uh, data again, the Bionax, one of those tests, and their sensitivities in the 70s. It's not terrible, but it's not as good as molecular based PCR tests. So the gold standard is going to remain uh, PCR done by a laboratory based or a laboratory that's familiar with doing a molecular tests. I do think there's a public health role for some of the home testing, but at the end of the day, um, you're gonna need a negative is, is only 70%. So you're gonna miss a number of true positives with those sensitivities. So.
0: So, there is a, an antiviral that is licensed in Japan. It's called Zoflusa. Uh, it's, it's a protease inhibitor, um, which makes sense for, for these. Uh, they are, uh, I think trials are ongoing, and hopefully, we'll find one that will be useful for, for home therapy. Wait the data. Um, yeah. We'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great name, though. It's, and if it functions differently than Tamiflu, by the way.
1: Emailed question early this morning, uh, Juan, about children at home.
0: Uh, question, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact question.
1: I, I remember So the, the question I got emailed on the way into work was, you know, what do we do about unimmunized children at home? So I'm a healthcare provider, I'm immunized, my spouse is immunized, but we've got a three-year-old at home who's unimmunized. What do we do? And I, and I, I think uh, I focus on common sense. If you're a, a pod and, and in general, you're not going out and about and um, your three-year-old is being taken care of by you guys, when you come home, you're not gonna wear a mask. And it'll be safe. You're immunized. uh, Your child's not in daycare or schooling, unlikely to be exposed. So you've got that scenario. Then you've got a scenario where there is a child who's out and about, and there is a chance of getting infected, but you are immunized. And I think, you know, one has to use common sense uh, there. It's going to be difficult uh, with a well child to wear masks at home. You're immunized. And if you are exposed, you're unlikely, but not zero, but unlikely to get sick. And you can still go to work if you are exposed by CDC guidelines. So again, if you're in your pod and you're not out and about, and you have a child who's going two days a week to a hybrid model or whatever it is, you're, I think you're going to need to be realistic. But there's risk, and, and we have to acknowledge that. There will be vaccines for kids down to 12 shortly, and they'll be younger than that, I think down to six months. I'm very confident we will have those data soon. In the meantime, we're going to have to manage this on a, on your family's basis now. Another example is uh, we went to visit our grandchild who is in a three-year-old who hasn't been out and about. Our children are immunized, he is not. And my wife and I went down there and did not wear masks because he has not been out and about and every all the other adults were immunized. I think that's safe. So hopefully I've given you some ideas from that answer.
0: Um, it's, it's almost nine o'clock. There are a lot of questions here, which I'm gonna make sure that John gets uh, uh, directly. Uh, John, any comments on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and and who would you recommend that for? I
1: mean, that vaccine's uh, out, remember the data, you know, one in a million. Uh, I showed you last week, probably less than one in a million of thrombotic. We're not sure it's vaccine-induced or not. And then if you get a natural infection from COVID, from SARS-CoV-2, you have 10 times the risk of some thrombosis. And so, you know, the data are pretty good. I think it's gonna be very useful for adolescents who don't wanna come back for a second shot. It's gonna be useful for young adults. Uh, So I do think there's gonna be a strong niche for this vaccine, particularly in people who may not have it be convenient to get back in for a second dose. I also think it's gonna be useful in the developing world where you need to get one dose out there. It's stored easier and easier to, it's hard to have a negative 70 freezer uh uh in some where there's no infrastructure so i think this vaccine will also have a strong role in the developing world again uh, th- thanks everyone for coming today i will get your questions and we'll answer them uh electronically and post them uh later See, in the week.
0: dr grover there are, a couple, there are a couple of questions that we didn't answer for for all of you thank you for joining us once again uh, please be safe wear your mask where you have to get vaccinated if you haven't join us again on tuesday for grand rounds and then a week from today for Another session of Ask the Experts. Uh, We may be going syndicated on this, John, so so be ready. Uh, So again, thank you, everyone. Be safe. Bye-bye.